0: Sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. Last week we were in Mark chapter 14. And we were talking about the story of Jesus with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's betrayed and arrested. And this morning we're going to come to Mark chapter 16. And here we find Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection. And so I'm going to go ahead and read our passage for us, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin reflecting on this story of Jesus' resurrection. So. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us before the entrance of the tomb?" Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So let's go before him and ask for his help this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. That we would hear your words to us. For we know that we don't need to hear the words of a man. We need to hear the voice of the living God. We need to encounter and meet our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. So, Father, would you pour out your Spirit upon us that these words would be proclaimed to us and that these words would challenge us and that these words would comfort us because of the work and the person of Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen. Years ago, quite a few years ago, when LASIK eye surgery was still kind of a A new type of procedure that you could get, I had a friend of mine who took his wife to get this this surgery done, this procedure done, and so they they showed up at the doctor's office and they were sitting in the waiting room waiting to be called to the back, and um, an elderly man with his daughter walked through the waiting room out of the doctor's office in the back and walked through the waiting room, and the entire time... That they were in the waiting room, all the way to the door, this elderly man was just weeping. And which was a little disconcerting when you're up next for eye surgery. Um, but uh, so when they got to the back, they asked the doctor about it. They asked him what had happened, and the doctor told them that this was the fourth time this man's daughter had brought him in to have this eye surgery to correct his eyesight and every time without fail right before the procedure was about to take place this man backed out he was just you know even though he couldn't see through his thick coke bottle glasses he was just too afraid of this procedure and he couldn't go through with it but on this day that they were in his office he finally went through it And when he opened his eyes for the first time without glasses, and he was able to see clearly distinct shapes and vibrant colors and details that he had missed for years, um, he couldn't stop his tears. And the tears were not tears of sorrow, they were tears of joy. And so for my friend and his wife, suddenly their nervousness departed And they were excited with anticipation to go through with the procedure. So here's the story in Mark chapter 16. A few women, Jesus' disciples, uh, some fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and some others. When the reality of Jesus' resurrection finally dawned on them, Right? It filled these simple men and simple women with such joy that they took this news out into the whole world. These simple men and women changed history. They they were so impacted with such joy for the resurrection of Jesus that they were willing to die for this news, and they did. Many of them did. And so the question is, do you want to see what they saw? Do you want to understand what they understood? Uh, because Mark wants us to. He wants us to understand at least three things here. The reality of the resurrection, the healing of the resurrection, and the freedom of the res- resurrection, right? So, The reality, the healing, and the freedom of the resurrection. First, the reality of the resurrection. Mark's account, like all the other accounts, it is written down for us as a historical record of what really happened. To these men and women, the resurrection was not a metaphor. It was not wishful thinking. It wasn't a legend. It was a historical event that happened in space and time, a historical reality that when they understood it changed absolutely everything, right? Let's just uh, touch on a few things in this text that show us that Mark is giving us a historical record of the reality of the resurrection. And then I want to end this point by thinking with you about how the reality of the resurrection really does change everything. Everything. All right, first, in verse 1, Mark records for us the names of these three women who went to Jesus' tomb. Right, You've got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. They went to anoint Jesus' body. What you can't see, because we didn't read the end of chapter 15, is that this is the third time in the span of just eight verses that Mark records the names of these women over and over and over, repeated and repeated, he names these women. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and because they were eyewitnesses who were still living at the time Mark put pen to paper. And it's Mark's way of saying, please go check out my story. Go find these women. Go talk to these women. This is how ancient historians recorded history. These were their footnotes when they listed the eyewitnesses so that you could follow up, so that you could go and validate their story. He's writing a historical record. Second, the only reason Mark and all the other gospel writers tell us that the first witnesses were women is because they were, right? In this patriarchal society, Women were not considered to be reliable or trustworthy witnesses. Their testimony wasn't even permissible in a court of law. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it's what it was. So if you're going to invent a legend, you absolutely wouldn't go about it by having your first three witnesses be women. The only explanation is this is what happened. And third, if you're tempted to think that Jesus' disciples were gullibly looking for any sign of the resurrection to attach their hopes to, then where were they? Because they weren't looking for an empty tomb, right? They weren't looking for a resurrection. They didn't even bother going to the tomb. And in John's account of the resurrection, when Jesus did appear to his disciples in bodily form, they still didn't believe it. And he had to eat fish in front of them so that they would know it wasn't a figment of their imagination. The only people who went to this tomb were these women. And they didn't go to encounter a risen Jesus. They went to anoint a dead body. I'm just, we're just touching on a few of the arguments that show that Mark and the other gospel writers understood that what they were writing was history. History. And there are plenty of other authors who can go into all kinds of details about other evidences. But what I want you to think about is how the reality of the resurrection changes everything. Right? This small group of first century simple men and women were so convinced of the reality of the resurrection. They were so full of joy at this news that they became the leaders of a movement that took this news out into the whole world. So convinced were they of the reality of the resurrection that they all willingly died for this message. Except for maybe John, who wrote the book of Revelation. But he was exiled to live out the remainder of his years alone on the Isle of Patmos, where he died. They all suffered for this news. They saw and understood that the reality of the resurrection changes everything. Jordan Peterson is a popular psychology professor and author. I know some of you are familiar with some of his work. I'm not all that familiar with him, sorry to say. Um, But He's made famous, I think, because of his ability to engage in discussions of philosophy and morality and ethics and politics and worldviews in a way that's um, very logical, in a way that's very accessible. Um, But he's not a Christian, Um, not a Christian. And and I haven't listened to him much, but in a recent podcast, he had a conversation with this guy named Jonathan Pajot. And to give you a little context, they were talking about how the objective world, the objective world, truth, ultimate reality, the metaphysical, and the narrative world, which is the physical world of space and time, concrete, tangible. How the objective world and the narrative world sometimes touch, is what they were saying. And it was really interesting because Peterson Himself, not a Christian, got very emotional and teary when he admitted that the ultimate example throughout history of the objective world and the narrative world touching has to be in the person of Jesus Christ. And what interested me most was when he said through tears, through his tears, believing in Jesus' quote, too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. And I really appreciate that honesty because Peterson is saying, if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that changes everything. I would have to adjust to that reality. I would have to orient my whole life around that reality. There would be no limit what God could ever ask of me, if that was true. You understand what he's saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying it is not the evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection that troubles him. It is the consequences of that. The reality of the resurrection changes everything. Now, admittedly, I'm going to pull up short of saying everything I want to right here, but you know what Peterson said in the end? He said, What makes it hardest for him to believe in Christianity is Christians. Quote, Christians aren't sufficiently transformed, he says, for me to believe that they believe in God. It reminded me of a quote by G.K. Chesterton when he said, The strongest argument against Christianity is Christians. I really appreciate Peterson's honesty and his critique there because we're being intellectually dishonest if we say we believe Jesus came into the world, died and rose from the dead and it does very little to change our lives. When the reality of the resurrection should be changing everything about our lives, the way we talk to and about each other, what we value in this life how we respond to those around us who are hurting, how we respond to being hurt, the way we spend our money, the way we do our work, the way we raise our children, the way we use our bodies and sexuality. Everything should change. On and on. It changes everything. Real quick, since we've been studying Revelation recently in first century Christians, um, there's a small group of powerless followers of Jesus who were hated And persecuted and rejected and killed by Rome for believing in Jesus. So how was it that Christianity eventually spread throughout the Roman Empire and conquered the world's greatest superpower of that time? They were so convinced of the reality of the resurrection that it changed everything about their lives. And they remained faithful to Jesus... When they were covered in tar and put on stakes and lit on fire. When they were sewn into animal skins and tossed to the wild beasts. When holes were drilled into their heads and molten lead was poured in. And they kept loving their enemies through this. And they kept practicing mercy to the poor and the hurting, and they kept telling the news of a resurrected Savior, and they refused to compromise with idolatry and all the sexual licentiousness that went along with it. And Rome saw a people sufficiently transformed by their belief in a resurrected Jesus, and it drew them in. The reality of the resurrection changes everything. All right, second, let's talk about the healing of the resurrection. So here's what I want to do in this point. I want us to take a step further in and talk about how the reality of the resurrection affects us personally. So these women, they went to anoint Jesus' body, but when they got there, the stone that was covering the entrance to the tomb was gone. And entering into the tomb, we're in verse 5 now, quote, They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. So an angel greeted them. And the angel told them that Jesus wasn't there, that Jesus had risen. And then in verse 7, the angel said this, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you in Galilee. All right. And Peter. Why did Jesus want to make sure Peter got the message? So last week we were in Mark chapter 14 in the evening of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And If you know that story, you remember how all of Jesus' friends fell asleep on him in his darkest hour. You remember how they scattered like sheep when their shepherd was struck. You remember how Mark made sure his readers knew that everyone fled from Jesus. They all failed, and that's true. But Mark also made sure in that passage that we read last week that we heard Peter say to Jesus. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Mark made sure we heard Jesus too. Jesus told Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Here's what I want to say. They all failed. But let's be honest. (laughs) Peter blew it way bigger than anybody else did. I mean, three times before the rooster crowed, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Right, the last time we're told, Peter began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He made a promise in front of the physical face of Jesus. And he blew it. And the last time Peter is mentioned in Mark's gospel before this passage, this is all it says. And he broke down and wept. He had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame to deal with. So it's not that hard to imagine then is it why Jesus might have singled Peter out? Because if the message had simply been, go tell his disciples to meet me in Galilee, don't you think Peter might have said, y'all go ahead. He can't possibly mean me. But Jesus singled Peter out Jesus wants you, Peter, to meet him in Galilee. Yes, Peter, you failed me completely, but you are completely forgiven. Listen, I've never, um, I've never read Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. Um, it's huge. I'm, I'm never going to read it because they make a lot of movies about it. So, um, and I do have this theory that you know, if you've seen this movie Les Mis, depending on which version you like the most that says something about you, I'm going to write a paper about it one day. For me, Jean Valjean, the main character, he is Liam Neeson. He's the only one. Uh, but anyway, Russell Crowe, come on. Uh, released from prison, you know the story? Valjean is recently released from prison and a priest invites him to stay in his home. But during the, during the night... Valjean gets up and he gets up so that he can steal all the priest's silver in the house and the priest catches him in the act and Valjean is violent with him and knocks him out and he flees into the night Um, and the next day the police catch up with Valjean and they, they bring him back to the priest but instead of condemning him the priest tells these policemen to release him and in an act of grace the priest gives Jean Valjean the silver candlesticks he missed the night before. And then the priest says this to him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. And Jean Valjean is shocked and amazed. But that act of grace, this is the whole story. So you don't need to read the book. I'm telling you the whole story. This is the whole story. That act of grace healed Jean Valjean. I mean, because the whole rest of the story is about how this hardened, bitter, violent man's life is healed and transformed by that grace, and how he becomes a man of grace and kindness and compassion and mercy and love. The priest wasn't great. Here's what I need you to hear the priest wasn't gracious to Jean Valjean because he repented. The priest's grace made it possible for Jean Valjean to repent. Before Peter even had a chance to repent, Jesus was showing Peter grace and love that made it possible for him to repent. Peter, I love you. Peter, I want you to be with me. Peter, my death and my resurrection was for you. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred and given you back to God. Sam Alberry, um, I was reading this book that he has on the resurrection, and I love this quote. He says, by dying and rising for us, Jesus has closed the deal. God has signed for it, and his signature is the resurrection. The resurrection is God's signature. He's saying it is his receipt that every debt of yours has been paid in full, Peter fell asleep on Jesus. He fled from Jesus. He denied even knowing Jesus. But Peter's failures were no match for God's grace. So i just end this point by asking you this. What is it in your life that you're feeling guilty for and ashamed of? Don't say it out loud. But there's something in all of our lives that we feel that way about. See the love and grace of Jesus, his dying and rising from the dead for you that make it possible for you to turn to him. I mean, if anyone in history could tell you that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've thought, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've said, it doesn't matter where you've been, it would be Peter. Peter would tell you, run into the arms of the resurrected Jesus who paid all your debts in full. And know the healing power of the resurrection. All right, finally, the freedom of the resurrection. As one preacher puts it, this angel tells these women to do two things. Really in verse 6 and 7. In verse 6, he tells them, don't be alarmed. And then in verse 7, he tells them to go and tell. Right, I want you to see here in this last point, we'll try to move through it fairly quickly. I want you to see how the resurrection frees you in two directions, how it gives you a freedom from fear, and it gives you a freedom for the world. All right, don't be alarmed. The resurrection gives you a freedom from fear. Jesus has ransomed you from fear. I love the honesty of Jordan Peterson, who recognized that he's terrified to believe in Jesus because it changes everything. But but here's the thing. When by God's grace... Your eyes are open to see the objective world and the narrative world touch for you personally. When that abstract philosophical language becomes real to you, you find glorious, joyous freedom. Objective and narrative worlds touching, it sounds very abstract. It's different words, but the Bible actually says the same exact thing. Because in the opening of his gospel, the writer John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the truth, ultimate reality, took on flesh. The metaphysical became touchable, knowable, seeable, visible. I don't think seeable is a word. Maybe it is. I don't know. God Himself came down. And not only did he become touchable, the Gospels tell us that he became vulnerable, that he became hateable, rejectable, bruisable, killable. And when you see he did that for you, nothing can stay the same. Everything must change. But not because you're afraid or terrified but because you are so full of joy, because you know that you are loved and forgiven and delighted in and welcomed in Jesus. What happens to you when the core motivation of your life is changed from fear to gratitude and joy? William Cowper put it like this in his hymn, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. You know what the name of that hymn is? Love constraining to obedience. Not fear, not terror, but love constraining to obedience. Not gritting your teeth and grinding your way through duty after duty, but transformed by love. That's what Peterson and and the world needs to see from believers. Do you claim to be a Christian? Is this how you're living? Are you set free like this and changed in every way? If not, you need to go back to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, to the wonder at the love of Jesus for you. And you've got to wonder and wonder until His love catches fire in your heart and sets you free from fear and turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. Second, he says, go and tell. The resurrection gives us a freedom for the world, a freedom that sends us out into the world to go and tell. The good news of the resurrection doesn't set you free to stand against the world. It sets you free to be for the world, to tell the good news of Jesus. It sets you to be free for the world to to do deeds of mercy and to work against the brokenness and the injustices of this world. Last night I was uh, sitting in my bed, and I was getting ready for bed, and I I clicked on the news app on my iPhone, and I didn't read a single article, I just kind of glanced at the headlines, and it shouldn't be any surprise to you, Um, it was all bad news, right? It always is all bad news. Sickness, and suffering, and war, and corruption, and death, and terror. Do you know the Bible often calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruit. Jesus raised from the dead with a physical, glorified body. He's the first fruit. Because the Bible says that one day, someday, Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he's going to raise up a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to undo all the brokenness and sin in the world and in you. His people will be given new resurrected bodies without blemish, and all suffering and all pain and all sorrow and all death and all tears will be wiped away forever and ever. Some of y'all may have heard this story before, but 13 years ago, I was, and I remember that because my, my oldest daughter was three at the time, um, and we were watching American Idol together. Um, cannot believe that show is still going, but that's a, another discussion for another day. Um, anyway, they were doing this special show um, where they were raising money for children in Africa. And the main focus was that they were raising money for these children in poverty, especially those who were suffering uh, from the AIDS epidemic and uh, from malaria. And there's all this footage of kids living in this horrible poverty, and they're in pain, and there's footage of them crying, and they're sick, and they're suffering. And my three-year-old daughter says, why are they so sad? And I was less than confident in my ability to explain AIDS and malaria. And so I just said, well, they all have boo-boos, you know, three-year-old. And she looked at me without hesitation and just said, will Jesus make it better? To be a Christian and to believe, is to believe in a resurrected Jesus a Jesus who triumphed over sin and death. Jesus who rose from the dead and is the first fruit. If you're a Christian, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus will make it better. One day, someday, Jesus will come again and raise all his people in this world to resurrected glory. No more AIDS, no more malaria, no more war, no more suffering, no more corruption, no more sin, no more death. Only life flourishing forever and ever. So what? So are are we supposed to just be waiting for that then? If you have a Bible in front of you... um, Right after verse 8, more than likely your Bible has a line underneath verse 8, and it says something along the lines of the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's way more than we can get into right now, but my thought is that Mark ends his account in verse 8 bluntly and abruptly, actually the exact same way he began his gospel— because he didn't say anything about Jesus being born to Mary or any of that stuff. He just jumped straight in with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And I think Mark ends it here abruptly because what he wants is for you to respond to this account. For you to respond to this account, for you to wrestle with the historical reality of the resurrection and respond. To see that we've been healed by the reality of the resurrection to see how it sets us free from fear to see how it sets us free to be for the world so that we would go and tell so that we would go and work in deeds of mercy and love and justice to bring a taste of the future resurrection into the world now you know the protestant reformer martin luther was once asked what would you do if you knew jesus was going to come back tomorrow and he said i would plant a tree i would plant a tree Because he was saying, do you realize how glorious that tree would be if Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Jesus will come again, and he's going to take what you and I do now, and he's going to sow it into the new heavens and the new earth. Do you believe this good news? It should be changing everything about our lives. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day to gather together to worship you, to come before you and rehearse and remember the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and to wonder, Lord, to wonder that God himself took on flesh for us, that ultimate reality took on flesh and became touchable but also killable and he did it for us and he rose from the dead that we might know the power of the healing of his resurrection in order that we would know that we have been set free set free from fear And set free that we might live for the world by telling the good news of Jesus. By working to bring into into being now a taste of that future resurrection. When all sin and all unrighteousness and all injustice and oppression are put down forever and ever. Father would you do this in us and through us by your spirit we pray. For we ask these things. In the matchless name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code 225-768-9999. Again, thank you for listening.